Well, I am delighted to have this opportunity to be with you this morning. Appreciate your willingness to come out to hear a theme like this. It's a vitally important theme, as Dr. Nettle has just reminded us, showing us from God's Word the absolute foundational nature of maleness as well as femaleness to what God has called us to be and do in His world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul warns us against being misled regarding who will and who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says it like this. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, unfortunately... The ESV, together with many modern translations, takes those, those words right at the end of verse 9, they're two words, and it conflates them into one statement of description, as I just read it, men who practice homosexuality. That phrase covers two specific Greek words. The King James Version is actually more literal here, because it renders both words separately as nor the effeminate, nor the abusers of themselves with mankind. Two different words. The word effeminate is the word malakoi, and it means soft. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament for that very purpose. It speaks of being effeminate or delicate. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 8, when Jesus is talking about John the Baptist and what people expected when they went out to see him, he says, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft, malakos, clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. When this word malakos, malakoi, is used of men, figuratively, it's describing effeminacy or unmanliness or softness. Now there are three points I want to call to our attention by way of introduction regarding Paul's use of this word in 1 Corinthians 6. The first is that there is such a thing as soft men. Secondly, it's a bad thing for a man to be a soft man. And thirdly, being a soft man is not the exclusive realm of homosexuals. Men can be soft or unmanly if they fail to be, in Paul's words, watchful or stand firm in the faith or act like men or to be strong. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13. Malakoi men are the bane of a society. They are the problem that will create difficulties in any church because they leave the most vulnerable, usually women and children, without any kind of protection. And they don't provide the kind of help that mature men should provide. But when unmanly men are in the roles of pastors and elders, it's a disaster. Because then congregations are poorly led, they're easily deceived, and only superficially served the gospel ministry that Christ intends for His churches to receive. Now let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. 
Last week, most of you probably heard that our President Trump decided to make an unscheduled visit at David Platt's church, McLean Bible Church in Virginia. And so David Platt, bless his heart, was put on the spot. What do you do when the President of the United States calls and says, hey, I'm stopping by in 15 minutes? Well, David Platt remembered what the Bible teaches that we are to pray for our authorities in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So he prayed for President Trump, which you know, I commend him. What do you do? Well, you, you do what the Bible says. So he prayed for President Trump. Well, a lot of people have reacted to that. Among the worst reactions that I saw was from a young church planter who condemned the actions, acknowledging that it was difficult, but he went on to describe the effect that it had on him. He says, this is why my family can't be in your churches. Because your churches are places where a president like Trump will show up and be prayed for. Your churches are a place where one minute my wife and I could be worshiping the Lord and within a matter of seconds, completely out of nowhere, our post-traumatic stress is triggering and we'd have to spend a week picking ourselves up off the floor. If we were there, we would have been broken. Now, I don't mean any disrespect to this brother who's got a background that maybe creates these kinds of difficulties, but that kind of softness will never be able to faithfully fulfill the demands of gospel ministry. Amen. If you don't have the gospel working in you, so vigorously that you're able to withstand being triggered by those kinds of things, you really ought to find a different profession. The world is too wicked. The devil's too deceitful. Sin is too sinister for a Malachi man to carry out the responsibilities of gospel ministry. Now, I want to be clear. Don't confuse softness with Christian virtues like meekness and gentleness and humility. Mature manhood will be characterized by these qualities. And these qualities are particularly valuable in pastoral ministry. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul demonstrated such virtues himself as he ministered in churches. He reminds the Thessalonians, not only was he like a father with his children among them when he exhorted each one, but he says he also charged them and encouraged them to walk in a manner worthy of God like a father. And then also, he says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of our own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, he says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves because you'd become very dear to us. When I'm talking about softness, when the Bible speaks of soft men, it's not talking about men who are devoid of these kinds of Christian virtues, some of which are just elevated in Christian womanhood. That's not the point at all. Jesus himself, when he described himself did so in terms of being gentle and lowly in heart. And there was nothing soft about Jesus. A soft man is easily triggered and traumatized because he has not grown to sufficient maturity in the gospel of a crucified Savior. He's, he's too easily intimidated by threats, will be too easily enticed by inducements, 
so that when he should stand firm, he will cave. A soft man has no business in the ministry. Listen to the way Charles Spurgeon put this in a sermon that he preached in 1860. In fact, this quote, part of it, was ruled out of bounds by Facebook last week. They took it off because they said it violated their community standards. Spurgeon said, Men are soft, molluscuous animals in these days. We have not the tough men that know they are right and stand to it. He says, even when a man is wrong, one does admire his conscientiousness when he stands up believing that he is right and dares to face the frowns of the world. But when a man is right, the worst thing he can have is inconstancy, vacillation, and the fear of men. Hurl it from thee, O knight of the holy cross, and be firm if thou wouldst be victorious. Faint heart never stormed a city. And yet thou wilt never win nor be crowned with honor if thy heart be not steeled against every assault and if they, thou be not settled in thy intention to honor thy master and to win the crown. Well, Spurgeon's right. Faint heart never did storm a city. And that's why we desperately need those who shepherd God's flock today to be mature, qualified men. Now, my brother David Miller is going to elaborate more directly on the qualifications that Paul lays out for pastors. What I want to do is to focus on the way that Paul describes the work of gospel ministry, the work of a pastor, in order to show how important it is that those who serve in this role be mature men. So I want to direct your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2. I want to read verses 1 through 7 and just direct your thoughts to four specific images that Paul gives to us there regarding pastoral ministry. Four aspects of pastoral ministry that he makes by way of comparison and metaphor in order to show what is going to be required of a man who takes up this call. Individually, each one of these shows the seriousness of that responsibility. Collectively, what they give to us is a vision that this role can only be filled by godly, mature men. Paul speaks of pastors in this passage in terms of a teacher, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. So listen for those as I read 2 Timothy 2, 1-7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Well, after spending the first chapter admonishing Timothy to gear up for what's about to be laid upon his shoulders after Paul dies, the apostle opens up this new section by encouraging his young colleague, his protege, to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus as he fulfills his ministry in leading that church in Ephesus. 
And he tells him to work hard. To do so, first, like a diligent teacher. To teach the whole counsel of God, the whole gospel to faithful men. This is verse 2. He's telling Timothy, pass on the gospel, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. He's talking about his doctrine. He's talking about the content of the message that Timothy had heard, that Timothy had read, that Timothy knew the Apostle Paul had received from Jesus Christ. All of his theology, all of his ethics, all of it having grown out of the gospel of Christ himself. Paul taught many things as we see in his letters. He he taught election. He taught predestination. He taught business principles and godliness. He taught about finances and giving. He taught about relationship between men and women, marriage, parenting. He taught about repentance, faith. But everything that Paul taught grew out of the Gospel, which is why he could say what he says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, when he reminds them, when he came among them, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. How could Paul make that statement when he addresses so many different topics? It's because all of those things grow out of the Gospel and an understanding of the Gospel. He's saying, Timothy, I want you to pass this on, to entrust it, to, to pass it along for safekeeping as you transmit it to others. Well, to whom does Paul specifically tell Timothy that he is to transmit this trust? Well, they're to be men of character and men of competence. Faithful men. This speaks to their character. Trustworthy, dependable, reliable. And though Paul insisted that women should also learn good theology and ethics just like men in places like Titus 2 and 1 Timothy 2. Here he focuses on men who will be responsible leaders in the churches. Men who are faithful. Not like the two men he mentions at the end of chapter 1 who departed and left him whenever things got difficult by jealous and homogenies but like Onesiphorus, who even though Paul's devotion to the Gospel caused him to wind up in prison, Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed to be identified with Paul and that Gospel. They're to be faithful men. They're also to be competent men who will be able to teach others also. Men who will pay the price to learn the truth, to digest it, to understand it, so that they can teach it to others accurately. So do you see what Paul's burden is here? His concern is that what he had been taught through Jesus Christ had been revealed to him, that would be faithfully and accurately passed on to others who would then themselves in turn pass it on. He's concerned about a multi-generational faithfulness in the Gospel. He wants to see ongoing ministry in the church after his death and after Timothy's death. There must be faithful men willing to pay the price to learn truth well enough to pass it on accurately to others who themselves will train others. The truth that has been given to us in Christ that we hold dear is always under attack, sometimes blatantly 
but always subtly. There are teachers in classrooms, pastors in pulpits, pundits in newsrooms, heretics on YouTube, profligates in Hollywood, and false converts in churches who regularly ridicule and dismiss altogether the truths that God's Word teaches. And our churches must be led by men who understand this, who will withstand that onslaught, and will hold fast to this sound teaching. We're always being nudged and pressured to compromise our stated convictions regarding the things that God's revealed. And do you know who the most vulnerable are among us at this point? It's those who are oblivious to the fact that they are being discipled by this world 24-7. They're oblivious to the fact that there's an agenda to take them away from right living before God. And do you know who the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable are? It's our young people and our children. They're growing up in a world here in our context that has subtly yet decisively moved into increasing godlessness in ways that is infiltrating our churches. So training them contrary to think contrary to the Word of God. Evil and perversion is being normalized. Good is being called evil. And evil is being called good. Brothers and sisters, if pastors aren't willing to do the hard work of seeing from God's Word the truth and then assessing the world in the light of that truth and teaching it and warning and admonishing and shepherding in the light of that truth, we leave the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable easy prey. And it takes mature men to carry out this responsibility. So a pastor must be a diligent teacher. Secondly, he must suffer like a good soldier. This is verses 3 and 4. Paul tells Timothy here to suffer, in, to share in suffering. He uses the same word that he uses in chapter 1, verse 8, when he tells Timothy to embrace suffering for the sake of the gospel. Suffer with the evil that comes because of your devotion to the gospel. He's saying, don't run from it. Welcome it because it's going to come. He's going to write in chapter 3, verse 12 of this letter, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, Christians are called to be good soldiers of Christ Jesus. How much more pastors must embrace that? I know that today it's, it's really chic to ridicule the idea of warfare when it comes to the Christian life. But brothers, it's in the text. And we are to endure as good soldiers. We must remember our calling. that We are indeed in a war. We have a commander. We belong to Him. He's our captain. He suffered. He was crucified for us. We, we have a crucified commander. And if that's true, then shouldn't we expect there to be opposition to those of us who are His followers? No soldier takes orders or gives himself over to the pursuits of civilians. Soldier works for the approval of his commander. He's a man under orders. He is committed to doing what he is told by his rightful authority. 
And we should live for the pleasure of our king, the one who called us into his service. <clears throat> Good soldiers stay at their post even when difficulties arise. They fulfill their duty. They don't whine or run when enemy bullets start flying. They fight. And if necessary, they die for the sake of following the orders of their superior. This is the kind of mindset that is needed in gospel ministers today. We're constantly being attacked. The gospel's being attacked. It's being ridiculed. We're being cajoled and threatened and enticed to back away from the scandal of our crucified Savior and the authority of His Word. We need men in the ministry who are willing to endure such suffering as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. But thirdly, the church needs men who stick to the rules like a championship athlete. This is verse 5. An athlete must train and compete according to the rules if he hopes to win his competition. And this very point reminds us that Christ does have rules. God does have rules. He's revealed them to us. Paul says it in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, pillar and buttress of the truth. God cares how we behave in the church. <laughs> He's written about this. And Paul says, these things I'm writing are for the purpose to teach you how to behave in God's church. God's house, God's rules. He gets to say what a church is to be and do. He's the one who gets to say what a pastor is and must be and do. Just like wrestling or football or cross country or racing or gymnastics, we have rules. We're not free to make it up. We have a book. And we must live and minister in accordance with this book. You know, we all love championship athletes. There's just something mesmerizing about watching uh, an athlete that's at the top of his game. Somebody like Lance Armstrong, who won seven Tour de France races after he was diagnosed with cancer that went to his lymph system and brain and was heralded as the greatest cyclist that we have ever seen until he wasn't when it was discovered that he had been using blood doping and performance-enhancing drugs and was stripped of his seven championships and banned from competitive cycling for the rest of his life. He didn't race according to the rules. And so he lost out on the prize. That's the analogy Paul uses for pastors. We are to compete. We are to engage with wholehearted determination to win, but we do so according to what God has prescribed in His Word. Those who shepherd Christ's church must resist every temptation to take shortcuts, to compromise our calling. We must submit ourselves to standards and requirements that God Himself has established for us in His Word and refuse to compromise those standards no matter what. One of the things I loved about what Dr. Nettles just did is he didn't show any embarrassment at all in dealing with texts that God's Holy Spirit revealed in the Bible. Nor should we. Nor should we. 
We should embrace what God has said. Well, a pastor must operate like a diligent teacher, a loyal soldier, a championship athlete. The next metaphor Paul employs is that of a farmer in verse 6. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Not the farmer who sleeps or fails to plant his crops at the right time. Not the farmer who quits because it's too hard or the weather's bad or it's too hot or it's too cold or it's too wet or it's too dry. Rather, the farmer who sticks with it, who's determined that he's going to have a harvest. And it doesn't matter how bad he feels. It doesn't matter how hot it gets. He's going to stay at the task. Paul's describing the work that needs to be done for a church to be served well by those who call are called by God to shepherd such a church. In verse 8, he tells Timothy to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in his gospel. Then he reminds Timothy that it's because of that very gospel that he's having to write this letter from Nero's prison. It's because of this gospel that he will, within a matter of months, have his head taken from his shoulders. But despite that, He's not overwhelmed. He's not going to quit. Why? He tells us. He endures everything for the sake of the elect in verse 10. That he also may obtain, they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's the attitude of the Apostle Paul. That's the attitude that men called by God to serve his churches must also seek to cultivate. Brothers, we need to be clear-headed on what it means to serve the church of Jesus Christ in a world in our context that is becoming increasingly hostile to him and his people. It will involve diligently teaching future generations of faithful men. It will involve enduring suffering like good soldiers, adhering to the word like athletes adhere to the rules of their sport. It will involve working hard like a farmer. Pastors must remember it is to this that we have been called. And by God's grace, we must embrace it. Immature, soft men should not apply for pastoral ministry. Not only will they not be able to do the work, they will be a hamper to the work. Such men will not minister the word of God in God's way. John Bunyan understood this. And that's why one of the first things that he does in teaching us about the pilgrimage of the Christian is to take Christian into interpreter's house and the first thing he shows him is that picture on a wall that describes a gospel minister. When Christian sees this portrait, he says, here's the fashion of it. A man had his eyes lifted to heaven. The best of books was in his hand. The law of truth was written on his lips. The world was behind his back. That man stood as if he pleaded with men. And a crown of gold hung over his head. So he asks the interpreter, what does this mean? And listen to the explanation. The man whose picture this is is one of a thousand. He can beget children, travail in birth with children, and nurse them himself when they are born. And whereas you see him with his eyes lifted up to heaven and the best of books in his hand and the law of truth written on his lips, it is to show you that his work is to know and unfold dark things to sinners. Even as you also see him stand as if he pleaded with men. And whereas you see the world is cast behind him 
and that a crown hangs over his head, that's to show you that slighting and despising the things that are present, for the love that he has for his master's service, he is sure in the world that comes next to have glory for his reward. Now, said the interpreter, I've showed you this picture first because the man whose picture this is is the only man whom the Lord of the place where you are going has authorized to be your guide in all the difficult places you may encounter in the way. Therefore, take good heed of what I've showed you and bear well in your mind what you have seen, lest in your journey you meet with some that pretend to lead you right, but their way goes down to death. May the Lord grant us such men in these needy days. May those of us called to this task embrace this calling to live for God's glory, growing up more and more into the maturity that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word we thank you for the wisdom that we find in Scripture, how you have ordered our lives. You've given us the church. You've called us to represent Jesus in the world, and you've called your gospel ministers to serve under the authority of Scripture for the glory of our Savior. I pray that you would help those of us who are pastors to embrace such a calling, to be unashamed of your word, to be willing to suffer whatever might come for the sake of making Jesus Christ known. Help us to this end, we pray. In his name, amen.